Welcome into this Five Clubs conversation. I'm Gary Williams. Now, the person I'm getting ready to talk to, I, I hope he doesn't start to analyze me uh, because then I'll become self-conscious. But isn't that kind of the essence of playing golf, that we come, become self-conscious about the way we play or the way we might play? Well, the book this gentleman wrote, I read it, and then I'm like, oh, my God, this is a different way of talking about the psychology of trying to play the game better at every level. And he works with elite players. The gentleman's name is Dr. Raymond Pryor. The book is Golf Beneath the Surface. We're going deep right now. Today's Five Clubs conversation is brought to you by Golf Pride. Golf Pride knows that a grip isn't only a grip. It's the one piece of equipment in your hands on every single shot. You might not know it, but it has a huge impact on your game. In fact, Golf Pride recently conducted a first-of-its-kind study showing the impact of worn versus new grips. It showed that on average, a focused group of adept golfers gained an extra two yards of carry when they played with new grips. So what are you waiting for? Refresh your grips. Refresh your game. Visit GolfPride.com today to learn more. Golf Pride. Respect the grip. And with that, we bring in the author of a book that I absolutely can't put down, and I've already read it a couple times. The book, obviously, is Golf Beneath the Surface. The author is Dr. Raymond Pryor. Raymond, how are you, my friend? Doing very well, Gary. Thank you for having me. Well, it's, uh, I, I'm very much looking forward to this, and I don't know, you know, sometimes when people write prologues to books or introductions, I, I don't know how much thought is given into the first line. Like, I need the first line to really be a hook. It wasn't just the first line, Raymond. It was the first three words, be a hitter. Now, <laughs> the reason I tell you that it was such a hook, when I was a kid playing Little League Baseball, and I only played for my dad, who was a college baseball player, uh, for two years. He would say to me on occasion, be somebody one time. Now, that's very endearing to me. I lost my dad 11 years ago. But there's these things that we hear from people. And the whole be a hitter, the context of it is that whether it's a guy who's an accountant, a lawyer, a sanitation worker who may coach at a team, and, and he he imparts these words on these people and you go, well, that's going to change their mindset. Why did you lead with those three words? Because you had me at those first three words. Yeah. So the, the crux of the book, Gary, is that I'm trying to take the reader below the surface, hence beneath the surface. Um, it's the new science of golf psychology in any realm, any performance realm, particularly in golf, where people are always trying to get better. And golf is a bit of a unique performance realm because there are so many amateurs that play relative to other sports because physically you can play longer, there's more access, etc. right? So there are many more people watching golf that also play golf than people who watch baseball who also plays baseball, et cetera, right? So with that many people, trying to perform and get better at something all the time and watching instruction shows and reading about it, there's a lot of surface level information. And surface level information, to be very clear, is really well-intentioned. It's trying to help people 
but oftentimes it's uninformed and therefore not always helpful for us. The story we had just talked about, you're a Jersey guy. My best friend, Bobby, is also from Jersey. We had the same Little League experience. When we were in grad school, we were talking about, remember when our coach just yelled at you, be a hitter, and you were thinking to yourself, what the heck does that mean? <laughs> like, how could I not be a hitter? I'm the only person with a hat, with a helmet on and a bat. And you go, okay, coach, yeah. But then on a deeper level, you're like, what is it? What do I even do with that? There's no usable information, right? So Golf Beneath the Surface is my attempt to help any golfer who really wants to get better to get below kind of the really common platitudes and these pithy catchphrases that have been the norm in performance psychology, especially in golf, and to give them something that is a little bit more in-depth, a little bit more mechanistic understanding of how our brain and our psychology and nervous system operate so that you're not getting some pithy catchphrase that you can't really do much with that may or may not be helpful for you. The, um, you know, the thing that I found interesting and I, I didn't know that I was going to find it interesting because I'm not, I'm not necessarily a clinical person. Um, I'd like to understand, understand things. I consider myself a curious person, but, but your willingness and, and your desire to share the neuroscience of, of the activity of the brain. You know, there are a lot of people who say, I don't know, I don't want to know why it happens. I want to know what to do when it happens. Um, why did you feel it was important to share why the brain works the way the brain works? For the very simple reason that if you don't understand how it works, it's really difficult to simplify and adjust your performance in real time and train it appropriately. I understand totally people go, I don't care how, just tell me what it, right? And if that were, again, and that's a very surface level approach, that's telling someone just be present, just be confident, just trust, et cetera. And if that works for you and that's all you want based on your golf experience and what you're looking for, great. I'm not here to jam it down your throat. But if you really want to build more stable confidence and create the psychological and neuro neurological states we know are much more conducive to consistent performance and performance under pressure. It's important to know how your brain works and know how your own thoughts work and know how your habits work and what your psychological framework is constructed as. It would be like, I really wanna just drive really fast in my car, but I don't wanna know how it works. Okay, but then what if something happens is the question, right? And inevitably in performance, it will. And if you don't understand things, and you don't need to be a neuroscientist or a psychologist, but with a minimal level, that gives you minimal operating power. And I want the reader to leave the book with operating power so that they are the expert on their own psychology by understanding the mechanisms uh, in their psychology and in their nervous system and how their neural circuits are working just enough so that when their performance uh, isn't going where they want to, they can move it in that direction and train it in that direction more often. The, the, you know, in the title of the book, at the top of the book, it, it talks about it, how it's a practical guide for composure under pressure, long-term growth, and a more fulfilling relationship with the game. And as you just referenced, this is a participatory sport. People who watch elite championship golf then walk out of the house and try to do it themselves at a right. level that that other sports, as you just said, it just it's not the same thing. There, there, there are tens and tens of millions of people globally who tried to do this. What do you think is if, if you could boil it down to a handful of things or two or three things? Fulfillment is a big thing. It's a big thing in life. 
a fulfillment with a relationship with golf, which I, I'd like to think that my relationship with the game is pretty darn healthy. What are the keys to having that fulfilling relationship with the game that can be agonizingly frustrating and difficult? Fulfillment looks different for different people, but I'll paint a little bit with a broad brush here. Um, how transactional of a relationship you create with the outcomes of your performance plays a big part in how fulfilling your relationship with it. Right? If we're breaking this down on a psychological level, we're saying, is it more intrinsic motivation, meaning I'm motivated to do the thing for the sake of the thing, or is it more contingent upon, do I get the results I want when they want them at the rate that I want them to happen, right? For example, this would be the danger or the downside with perfectionism, particularly as you're on the upper end of the learning curve, meaning you're better at golf, is that the window for that transaction to be met gets smaller, not wider, right? So the more we build a relationship around golf where yes, outcomes matter, but they are not required for it to be a fulfilling experience, the more fulfilling it becomes, right? We know for sure that when we are intrinsically motivated to do something, like if I asked you, Gary, if you had the option to play golf today, knowing that the score was not going to be what you really expect it to be or want it to be, but you're going to get to play, your answer would be yes, I'll do that anyway. Because just playing golf and the experience around it is what's driving you more than I just need the outcome to go a certain way. Now, again, if you're playing at a professional level or any level of golf, but especially the highest levels, outcomes do matter. However, if they are the sole driver, the primary driver, then what happens is they start to detract from the experience. And the science behind it in a very summarized way is we have this thing called a dopaminergic system. Dopamine is the neurotransmitter of pursuit. It makes pursuing things, even the most frustrating things in our lives, like golf, where the margin for error physically is literally the size of a dime, it makes that pursuit enjoyable and meaningful for us. But if it is contingent upon outcomes, our dopaminergic system pairs to the outcome only. And then as soon as that outcome is either too far away into the distance, it's very difficult to stay motivated and fulfilled with something. Or if we're playing and we pass the point where those outcomes that we must feel that we have become unavailable to us, then the experience itself becomes far less enjoyable. And so when we are intrinsically motivated, meaning I'm doing something because of the experience, I'm curious about it, I'm diving into it to understand more and try to perform as well as I can, and outcomes are more of a bonus, the process becomes much more of an intrinsically motivating event, which is a fancy way of saying our dopamine system pairs to it, which means it's enjoyable even when it's not very fun. And if you do that over an extended period of time with something, you are going to have an immensely fulfilling relationship with something. So it's less transactional and I am disproportionately motivated to do the thing itself than just relying on outcomes alone, which again, creates this very wide, uh, narrow window, excuse me, for the experience to be fulfilling. Mm. So if we look at people who find things fulfilling, the window for what makes it fulfilling is not small. It's as wide as possible. Right. And so in, in golf, if we widen the window for what makes the experience enjoyable, whether it's interacting with people, enjoying courses, playing certain types of shots and, and experimenting with things and just getting curious about all the aspects of it, the outcomes become an important bonus, but not a requirement. And that will create a much more fulfilling um, craft relationship experience over time. The other thing we know about that, Gary, it's a performance enhancer as well. 
people who have a more in a disproportionately intrinsically motivated relationship with their craft in any performance realm have longer, healthier and higher performing careers. Because when things get really hard or the outcomes that they really want are not available to them, the thing sustains their relationship with it, not the outcomes themselves. You know, I've asked lots of players through the years because you hear when something's over, wow, that was fun. Well, yeah. that was, I really enjoyed that. And I don't do this every time, but, but I'm inclined to ask, was it fun in the moment or is it just fun now in reflection? Of all the players, and one of the things I will say this about the way that you write, uh, this is not about sharing, hey, I, I, let me tell you exactly about who I'm working with. You, you do not identify who you're working with. Um, you, you, you just don't. But of all the players that you do work with, and many at the highest level, do they find joy in the moments that they are performing? They do. So part of that is the intrinsic motivation. So if, if I help players develop a more intrinsic motivation, again, that is not devaluing outcomes, especially if your livelihood is at stake with them, right? And many of the players I work with are playing for not just points and money in their career, but they're trying to stack majors, build a legacy, and all these things. They're trying to change the shape of the game. Those are important outcomes to them. When our relationship becomes disproportionately intrinsically motivated, what happens is as our dopaminergic system pairs to the experience itself, even when we're uncomfortable, when we're uncertain, when we're facing adversity, when we're under pressure and, and we're challenged, that becomes an enjoyable experience for two reasons. One, the dopamine aspect of it. And two, Gary, they're present more often. And the bottom line is we know for sure human beings are happier, healthier, higher functioning when they are present more often. If I took any player I work with at any level and said, tell me about your best golf, and the golf that was the most enjoyable for you, they would put it in two categories. One, outcomes mattered. <laughs> but two, I was present and I was playing freely. And if I told you outcomes matter and you have to perform well to pursue the outcomes you want, but you are present and playing freely, that right there is the formula for flow state and the formula for fulfillment. And and right? I, I want to talk about flow state because I, I there, there's a book titled flow uh there is a lot that you talk about in this there have been other people in your field uh that that, that talk about it, and i'm fascinated by it but the, the idea of being present gets to something that you address very early on in the book the distinction between anxiety and nervousness and it's really important that people understand this read this um and realize that 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 one is unavoidable and, and the other is actually pretty preventable if you, if you, if you are focused on trying to have a plan of how to, how to handle the things that go on in your mind. But explain to people not only the distinction between the, the two and the fact that one is absolutely unavoidable and the other one kind of is. Yeah. So here's your question earlier. Why is it important to understand your brain a little yes. bit? Because if you don't understand the difference between nerves and anxiety and you confuse them as something that is the same, when you get nervous, which is unavoidable, you will treat it as if it's anxiety and then that becomes disruptive to us. So nerves are a physiological response for us when outcomes matter at the times they matter. So all I have to do to make anyone nervous is put them in a situation where the outcomes really matter to them and we cannot trick our brain into going, oh, these, these don't matter. Like uh, if I told you you're playing in the masters, just pretend the score doesn't count, doesn't work. 
our brain is way too attuned to figure out when that matters. And it needed to be in order to keep us alive. So when outcomes matter to us at the times they matter to us, our body is designed to mobilize to help us either defend ourselves or move toward the resources that we needed. That's what nerves are. And it comes with some uncomfortable physiological response. Our heart rate is going to increase. Our breathing rate is going to increase to keep that blood moving. The butterflies in our stomach, the physiological process is that is blood moving from our torso and our abdomen where it's protecting our vital organs and running our digestion out to our limbs where we can fight, flight, or freeze, right? So that's what the sensation of butterflies is. Nerves are a good thing, Gary. They make us more athletic. Like players tell me all the time, when I'm nervous, I got to be really careful about my club selection because I'm going to hit it farther, right? It's a mix. Nerves are a chemical mixture of dopamine and adrenaline. So when players say, when my adrenaline's up, I got to pay attention to what club I'm hitting. I'm like, to be clear, it's adrenaline and dopamine. That's why it feels kind of good, right? <laughs> Anxiety though, Gary, by definition, that's a psychological state that is worry about the future, it is us either playing out the what ifs, this happens, what if this happens, what if this happens, or uh-oh, you can't let this happen, you must not let this happen, and us filling in worst case scenario in a way that makes us become preoccupied with the future because we're giving ourselves a very good reason to be worried about it. The thing about it, though, is we are worried about something that hasn't actually happened yet and therefore doesn't exist. Being nervous, if we know how to be present with nerves, makes us high performing. That's why we have that response. It makes us higher performing in situations where increased performance is valuable for us, both for survival and thriving. Anxiety, on the other hand, is a defense mechanism. It's trying to keep us safe. The reason it feels terrible to us, anxiety, is because it's just adrenaline. There's no dopamine involved. And we are in the future mm. playing out worst case scenario. And again, as much as oftentimes we hear the phrase, a little bit of anxiety is a good thing in golf, it is not. Our research shows us unequivocally that worrying about the future creates multitasking between timeframes for us. So psychologically and physically, I'm present and focusing on the shot at hand because I have to, it's here. But I'm also in the future thinking about something that hasn't happened yet. And in a way where I'm now multitasking between pursuit of what I want right now and avoiding the future that I don't. And here again is why it's important to understand how our brain works. Gary, if I give you two tasks, go pursue the thing you want right now as freely as possible in a way that would be fulfilling. And don't you dare let the future play out in a way that you don't want and find threatening. Your brain is specifically designed to pick avoidance and you don't get a choice in the matter. And the two tenths of a second between the top of your backswing and impact is about five times as much time as our brain needs to go pick avoidance when we are giving it that option, mm. right? And so understanding the difference between nerves, which is pursue what you want right now with an elevated physiological state, and anxiety, which is an elevated physiological state because I'm trying to save myself from the future, one is a performance enhancer, one is a performance detractor, and understanding the difference between the two allows you to address both effectively. The um, There are several overarching themes in, in this book. One of them is is the relationship, this, this inner experience. 
And, and, you know, some people are more inclined for whether it's introspection, uh, reflection, mindfulness. Mm-hmm. You know, these are all important things that you address in the book, acceptance, all those things. But, but can you give just a, a general capsule of, of what the inner experience is and the importance of your relationship with your own inner experience? Yeah, what a great question. Look at you, Gary. <laughs> all right. <laughs> So our inner experiences are just collection of whatever it is that we are experiencing internally at any given moment. That includes our thoughts, our feelings, our sensations, whatever we might be feeling physically. So if I were to ask you, what is your inner experience right now? You might say, well, it feels quite tranquil. Perhaps I'm having some thoughts about processing what Raymond is saying, et cetera. And when you're on the golf course, I might say, hey, when you're approaching a really difficult tee shot, what does your inner experience tend to shift to? And it might be some nerves. I might notice an elevated state. I also might notice there are some thoughts. Some of them might be some anxious thoughts. And so whatever we are experiencing internally, both cognitively and emotionally and sensation wise, that's our inner experience at any given moment. We also have a relationship with that. So having thoughts, feelings, emotions, sensations, especially ones that might be disruptive at times is a really important thing. It's an, it's a cornerstone of being human and performing under pressure, by the way, how we interact with that tends to determine how much freedom we have to perform in a significant way. For example, if I have a thought, Oh man, don't hit it left. (laughs) And I go, Oh, you can't think that. Or I have a sense of, I feel a little bit of anxiety about how a round is going to go. And I tell myself, you can't be feeling that. You need to be feeling something else. What we know is that actually amplifies what we're thinking and feeling. So a feeling of anxiety and perhaps a couple of anxious thoughts, because I'm trying to, quote unquote, do something with those thoughts and feelings, meaning banish them, bury them, distract myself from them, pretend they don't exist, or smother them with some other types of thoughts, we know that starts to compound them. In psychology, we call this suppression and amplification. The more I suppress my inner experience, the more elevated and amplified it becomes. And it won't be a surprise that it is a lot more difficult to perform when our inner experience is intensely amplified. So that means a lot of thinking, layered emotions and sensations becomes more difficult to play freely. On the other hand, if we learn, so mindfulness is a type of awareness And what we learn through mindfulness is not to not think or to not feel. What we learn is to have thoughts and feelings. And if I'm putting into a very simple phrase, do nothing with them. Having the thought about hitting it left is of zero consequence to your performance unless you try to do something with that thought and turn it off. Right. Feeling a little bit of anxiety in pressure situations is normal for us as human beings. Trying to turn off your anxiety moves it closer to panic than it does composure. Right. And so what mindfulness teaches us is not don't think and feel. That would be an unrealistic expectation for any human, especially performing under pressure. What it teaches us to do is pay attention to what we think and feel and then decide, do I want to do something with this, like entertain this thought or this feeling? Or do I want to do nothing with it? In which case, then these thoughts and feelings become much more transient, meaning they can come and go and they become less disruptive to us. So if I told you, Gary, you got a five and a half hour round of golf under pressure. Just don't have any disruptive thoughts or feelings. You would tell me to go stick it where the sun doesn't shine. But if I said, what if we paid attention to when you have disruptive thoughts and feelings, and instead of trying to do something with them, we simply notice them as a thought or a feeling, but not necessarily a precursor to the future and not necessarily something that is a fact, 
Now, all of a sudden, those thoughts and feelings have a very different weight. It's the difference between a practice swing and an actual swing. We have thoughts that are practice swings all the time. They have zero consequence to our scorecard until we treat them as if they're an actual swing and play through them. Right. So the, the loose analogy for this mindful experience is if we treat our inner experience like waves on the ocean, we can either swim in it. That's doing something with it, in which case then we get swept around by the water or we learn to observe them from the shore. In which case, then they can be whatever they're going to be without actually impacting us directly. And that leads to, again, this this other big theme of the book and one that I and I, I'm just saying that I, I think I get it because I think I get it because I know I've experienced both. And and I think I get it because I, I think I know when I see it. And that is the doing mode of mind which is something you were essentially just referring to in the being mode of mind. Like I've got this thought like, Oh God, now, okay, now I got it. Now I got to attack this thought. And that's the doing mode of mind. That's your doing mode of mind. You're trying to do something with your thought. Yes. And so again, when you see the manifestation of one or the other from someone you work with in a highly intense moment on a golf course where Again, it's thought. It's thought overwhelmingly that's what your experience is, and the physical act is finite. Can you see it? Can you see doing mode of mind and being mode of mind easily between people you work with? When I get to know a client well enough, we'll know yeah, for sure. Because I'll be able to see oftentimes the signs of it, and then um, they'll be able to relay it really quickly and articulately what we'll tend to see again every player has a different level of ability but when we're in this doing mode of mind where i have thoughts that i don't like and i'm trying to smother them away or quote unquote do something with them what happens is i'm now prioritizing my inner experience over my actual performance right which is why when we get internally focused it starts to disrupt our external environment and our ability to interact with it we get introceptive instead of extroceptive which is a fancy way of saying i'm focused on what i'm thinking and feeling far more than i'm focused on this target sport right in front of me right and what we'll see is they perform below their ability and it tends to compound a little bit so there's certainly something to be said about the best players in the world from time to time make a swing super freely without any self-imposed interference, and it still just ends up not a great shot because they're not robots. But a top-ranked player in the world hitting three or four shots in a row, maybe even two sometimes depending on what they're facing, that's them multitasking with something because the odds of them hitting four poor shots or four less than functional golf shots in a row at their skill level, really low. Right. Even if they're facing a difficult lie or something like that, usually they're pretty good at putting a good swing on a ball for the most for the most part. So the bottom line is you'll start to see it. And what it looks like is defensive execution. Like you don't have to be a psychology expert to notice when someone is playing scared or playing safe. Like you'll see it in their physical swing. You know, I always um, it's important for, for example, in this book, I kind of laid out a little bit. But for your listeners, it's, our psychology is really important because it's the first gate through which our, our physical performance moves through. And so if, if that first gate is not set up for be present and play freely, there's a compounding effect that will then you'll see it in physical execution. Maybe not for a golf swing that fast meets the eye, but you'll notice it. It doesn't. And golf fans 
have watched enough golf on TV. They see when somebody's playing and making free swings and when they're steering something out there, hoping it doesn't go somewhere. So you will be able to see it. But to your point about interacting with our own inner experience, if I'm trying to always do something with my thoughts and feelings, two things happen. They have a ton of power over me. Mm. And now I'm trying to avoid them and do something with them even before they might happen. I start to worry about having a thought before I've even had it. Had it. And two, my actual performance moves down the priority list. And that has a detrimental effect on how I perform, regardless of what circumstances you're facing. You know, one of the things in the book that I, I found very interesting is that you wanted to spell... And it's not that people are are unintelligent, but and it's but it's it's a phrase you hear like, well, he or she made winning a habit, and right. you're like, okay, winning is not a habit. It, winning is not a behavior. It's an outcome. Um, so I I share that with with this question. Do you think athletes have a clutch gene? There's no evidence to suggest there's a clutch gene. If you so one of the homework assignments I give my uh, clients is go find somebody who you think just has it, however you define it, uh, the gene, the magic formula touched by whatever divine power, et cetera, the and go do an hour, just one hour of research on their life and then come back and tell me if you really think they have a gene or whether you think they developed what they have. Mm. And our research shows us over and over again, even if you are born with a significant propensity for talent, like not everyone's born with the same genetic code, that is for sure. There's development with it. And that development is far more predictive than just the genetic code. In fact, research shows that genetics play a lesser role as you increase in ability. So the genetic difference between tour players is essentially statistically insignificant. It might be very significant for 13-year-olds because it determines when they hit puberty or not, right? So genetics play a much larger role on the bottom of the learning curve, not the top. What we find when we look at people who are super clutch under pressure is they have developed patterns of thinking, patterns of behavior, and have learned to see being under pressure as a means of pursuing, not avoiding. And if you add those up over time, it looks like they were blessed with the magic formula or the magic gene, but really what they've done, whether organically or systematically, developed the ability to win things matter most to them, to be present and to perform freely. And if you stack that up under pressure over the course of a season, yeah, it's going to look like that person was has the magic touch, but it's something that was learned. And so to your point, winning isn't the habit. Winning is the outcome that comes from developing a variety of habits that when you are faced with the same types of triggers that move people in a defensive direction, you continue to pursue freely. And that doesn't mean you're gonna cut every corner and fire at every flag, but what it means is you're playing your skills at a higher capacity than people are giving access to their skills. There's a reason that the you know, top 10-ish in both the men and women if you look at that top 10 list week in and week out, it's pretty much the same people. And it's because it's not because they're just better. Oftentimes it's they're very, very good and they give themselves full access to their skills week in and week out. And they're going to have some funky weeks, but more often than not, they're going to under pressure, they're going to play freely. And if you do that, you're going to have a significant advantage over people who won't. Do you um, so? With that being said, do do you subscribe? There's a, there's a, another phrase that we we don't rise to the occasion; we fall to the level of our training. 
that that innate ability coupled with with refinement and and the most useful process is going to produce the best outcome so that those most prepared and you couple that with this this certain level of genetics that they're going to be the most inclined to get the best results most often yeah, I would go one step further. So I would say um, under pressure, what it, certainly there's a genetic component to it, but it's really how, how much have you developed that genetic ability or essentially like how much have you learned and increased your competence level for something. Mm -hmm. And your genetic code certainly plays a role in how competent you can be at something. Deliberate practice takes up most of that. The second part I would put to that, Gary, is and you're willing to use it freely. So for those, I don't know if they can, most of your viewers or listeners are going to be able to see this, but on one hand, I have a hand really high above my head. Mm -hmm. Let's say that's your level of competence, your level of ability, which includes not just your physical skills, your core strategy, your ability to adjust in real time. Like this is your golf ability. Well, if my psychology only grants me partial access to that, it doesn't really matter how good I am because that's all I have. Right. So if you're talking about, do you, rise to the occasion or you drop to the level of your uh, training, I would say it's not just training, but also the level of freedom you allow for yourself. Mm. And freedom comes from kind of allowing yourself to possibly try and fail. Under pressure, some of the best golfers in the world are all they're doing is trying to avoid failing. And therefore, what they're doing is they're set essentially settling for less than their full capacity, whatever that might be at that time. And so for our psychology, not only is it a genetic thing that's the beginning which we know doesn't play as much a role as we really think it does there is certainly a, something to be said about training and preparation then there's am i willing to go turn it loose without with by allowing the possibility for failure for example everyone here's been to school you know those kids who genetically probably super smart do all the homework and some and the extra credit and study to the nth degree but they get to the test and they have text anxiety. And so they're not allowing themselves full access to what they know. And they really struggle on tests. This, that's just the definition of performance anxiety. That happens for pro golfers or golfers of any level where they go, well, I know I'm this good, but I'm only playing this good. In which case then, well, what's the disparity between these two? The first thing I'll ask is, is your first gate, the psychology allowing you to be present and play freely? If it's not, you can spend all the time you want tuning your equipment. You can spend all your time grooving your swing and your putting stroke and your short game and spend all the time you want prep preparing, but you are not going to have access to that unless your psychology allows that for you. The um, One of the things that I think is, is great about the book is that it's not only identifying um, you know, the processes to, to then address things. It may be shortfalls, and it's not just for the elite golfer. This is the application of of this to to the recreational golfers so you're not going to pick this up and go well well that's how the best players in the world deal with this stuff psychologically no it, it the application is to everybody but so with that being said triggers behaviors results which is again another big part of the book how do you track progress with your clients who are elite players and how can the recreational golfer most effectively track progress when it comes to making alterations to the way that they think in terms of their triggers, their behaviors, and then the results. Yeah. 
two things are going to happen. The first is you're going to pay attention to what your subjective experience is. Your subjective experience is, am I feeling anxiety and frustration or am I feeling less of that, right? Not necessarily turning it off, but really what we're talking about is there's, if you're doing the psychological work, now it can come at a different rate for different people, but what happens is you're going to play more freely when outcomes matter to you. And it might not be easy, but your subjective experience will tell you, I played that more freely than I did previously. So there's a subjective component to it. The objective component is you'll be in many ways. And for most of the players I work with who have access to these resources, you're going to see differences in your physical skills. So to your point about you are referencing the three elements of a habit, which is a trigger, a behavior and a, a reward, which is really like a reward value or a result. When we have habits that push us toward avoidance, not pursuit, we see things neurologically and physically play out in a certain way. For example, if my habit is overthinking, I'm going to see really high intensity and high frequency brainwaves if I were to hook you up to just even a simple biofeedback device for your brain. But more than that, I'm going to be able to see it in your swing because we know that brain activity that comes from a certain psychological state, meaning you're multitasking, you're not really present. It disrupts the sequencing of your swing. It disrupts your ability to apply the appropriate amount of force, meaning not too much or not too little, but the right amount, which is short game for sure and half shots. And it disrupts your ability to be focused on a target when it's time to be focused on a target. And so where you'll see progress is you'll start making more consistent movement, physical movements, and very likely those are going to be paired to different and hopefully improving outcomes. But the bottom line is we know for sure certain psychological states create certain neurological and physiological states that disrupt physical skills in very specific ways. So it's not difficult to measure if you have the equipment. For the average golfer reading this book, the, the trend is going to be, is my confidence more stable? Am I playing more freely mm. in situations, both internal and external, where I normally wouldn't? And it takes a little bit of time um, and it takes a little bit of work. We're looking for consistency in a lot of the mental training that we're doing, but almost your subjective experience will change and you'll start to see um, changes in your physical execution of skills. Those are the more objective measures. The, um, you mentioned flow state. So you, you said that, you know, for, for the best in the world, um, achieving flow state, I, I believe it's 10%. Um, why, why is it only 10%? And, and, and is this true of, of all elite athletes? Or can can someone who plays left guard for the Packers be be you know at a flow state that is higher or lower, and it's masked or amplified by the performance of those around them? Whereas with golf, this is a singular pursuit you cannot hide. Your performance is what it is. Um, is flow state consistently in terms of the percentage of achievement across the board for all athletes? So that 10% is an average across a variety of performance problems in and outside of athletics. Okay. So that might also So a doctor, a doctor, a doctor, a professor, doctors, professors, mathematicians, pilots, all of those. So they take a variety of performance realms and they're measuring both subjectively and objectively flow state. So subjectively, the measure is that experience that we have when we're in flow state, which it feels very easy it almost feels like there's a distortion in time that matches what we need. Either it slows down if I need it to slow down or it speeds up, which is just a byproduct of us actually being our focus being synced with the actual passage of time. 
rather than being on the past or the future. There's, it's immensely enjoyable. And that is, again, that's your dopaminergic state fueling the present moment for you. There's an intrinsic motivation without goal striving. And so goals are not a bad thing, but when we are focused on them, by definition, we are either in the past or the future as well. So there's this subjective experience that you can ask people about that there are no uncertain terms. Every person understands it and, and can describe it. The When we ask people to describe flow state, the description is remarkably similar for everybody, regardless of their performance realm. The objective measure is we look at people's brain activity. And when people are in flow state, they're working on these really low frequency, low intensity brain waves, which basically means they're not thinking a lot. They're seeing and reacting to their sport. And that's, that's what makes it feel like our performance is so simplified. We're not multitasking with anything else. Okay. So that 10% is, um, a low percent for most people, one, because most people aren't training themselves to understand how to be in the present more often, nor are they addressing the either habits or the beliefs that they have that draw them out of the present and for a good reason for their brain. So that's another way of saying, am I training myself to be present? And am I addressing the things that keep me from being present when I'm performing? So that's part of it. The other part of flow state is it does rely on some external factors. For example, if I'm in the middle of a sport and I'm doing something and everything's going great, but I'm playing a certain round of golf. I've had a couple of players tell me, man, I was in flow state for like six holes. I was just raining all over the flag and making putt from everywhere. Then the player I was playing with hit it somewhere and had to call over an official. And so there's a, there's a screeching halt in your rhythm and your round, right? So that maybe you were in and you were climbing toward 10% and then now all of a sudden it stopped. Or you're in flow state, everything's going great. And then even though you're in flow state, you hit a shot, maybe even a really good shot that ends up in a bad place and there's a screeching halt, right? So there are external factors that contribute. But to your uh, point also about perhaps referencing a lineman in the NFL, we there is such a thing as group flow state, which is crazy to think about. You would need 11-ish players yes. at a time, perhaps even more if there's substituting going on all on time at the same time firing on the same time frame and performing really freely group flow state is powerful gary i can't imagine and you can see it and a group is one or more so you can see it during the Ryder cup and the Sloheim cup you see a whether it's alternate shot or best ball or whatever and you see them when they're in it you can also see when it gets disruptive and sometimes it's an internal thing sometimes it's an external thing and so flow state it's awesome. The reason it's 10% is because it requires some contribution from us, sometimes to do nothing with thoughts that are disruptive rather than doing something. And also there are external factors that can be at play. But the bottom line is we don't need to be in flow state to perform really well. We do need to be present, which is why the overarching element of flow state is I'm immersed in the task at hand as it's happening. So you hear be present, and although that's a surface level instruction, it is indeed correct. The reason it's correct is because when we are present, we are at our happiest, healthiest, and highest functioning in terms of we are not multitasking with timeframes that don't exist at the same time. Do, um, do people who work on conscious breathing, who pursue solitude, are they more inclined to have success? It's, it's one of the contributing factors. So there are a variety of means we can train ourselves to be present more often. And sometimes that's solitude. So 
there are a variety of different solitude type things. And what that solitude allows us to do, it's not some like torture chamber thing, although it can be turned into that. It, you have to sit with your thoughts in solitude is, and, and not distract yourself from them, which we do quite a bit in our lives. And in that, you have the opportunity, although painful at times and uh, difficult, it allows you to address the types of thoughts that draw you away from being present more often. So what I would say with solitude, although perhaps guided solitude, you have an opportunity to remove some of the things that keep you from being present and playing as freely as you would like. And if you are training yourself and also your brain, the neural connections that move us toward being present more often, Gary, if you told me you have two players of equal skill, one of them addresses things in solitude at times and trains actively to be present more often and the other doesn't, all, all other things being equal, that player is going to perform better. Now, again, your psychology is the first gate in performance, but it's not the only. And there are other important things. You got to take care of your body. You got to train your craft. Uh, you have to sleep well, all of these things. But if you told me all other things being equal, this player is allowing for uh, to interact with the scratchy parts of his inner experience or her inner experience and without doing anything with it or by trying to understand it and tr actively training to be present. That's a powerful combination. Um I, I've shared this a handful of times. The, the 2019 Masters, I, you know, I didn't know whether he was going to win or not, but I walked every step with Tiger in the final round. And there, is, there was a moment when, when all hell had literally broken loose. And, and he was walking off the 14th tee, and I was crossing with the gentleman I was, I was walking with. And so they were trying to create space for him and Tony Finau and Francesco Molinari uh, to, to walk to their tee shots. And I just happened to be crossing and look back, and he was ahead of the two of them. And I told the guy I was with, I said, look at him. There is a, there is a spatial awareness about him. And I'm, not, I'm certainly not a, a psychologist, I, I, but it was just, it was, it was somebody who seemed to be moving and receiving all of the chaos around him in a much more understanding and calm way than everybody else. And whether it was kind of rolling his shoulders a little bit forward and his eye line being where it was, I went, he's processing all of this better than everybody else. Um, and he hadn't been there in a while in, in the terms of being, yes, in the sense that he was close in 18 at the open. Can you see people, whether you work with them or people that you've observed closely for a while, handling stuff simply better than others. Yeah, there's, you, I don't think you have to be a psychologist to be able to observe composure. Right? Composure, by definition, is not that things don't bother me. It's that when there are things that bother me, I'm able to interact with them in ways that allow me to stay focused on what is most relevant and most valuable to me right now. If you are a golfer playing in the Masters in contention, it is going to be a storm of distractions. I mean, I think a couple of years ago, like a tree fell down during the middle of the round. Off That's of one correct. Like those types of things happen. And if we're being uh, honoring and acknowledging Tiger's experience as much as any of us can understand it, he his storm is far more stormy than others because of his past, because of what a level of achievement he has and also off course stuff. So when he's in contention to win something, especially a major, the storm is going to increase at an exponential rate. 
his composure, although we might see it on the outside, it's very easy to fake um, body language. In fact, body language is much more of a symptom than it is a cause in terms of confidence and composure. But you can see to a degree when people are composed and when they aren't. And again, sometimes you can fake it and get away with it. Other times you can't. What you'll see from Tiger is that he has been in that storm in so many ways for so long and not always been composed in it. But he has certainly learned how to navigate that, especially at the times when it's when he's trying to close a golf tournament. Uh, and that's why his record closing a golf tournament, especially in majors when leading is unbelievable. I think he's maybe just him and Y.E. Yang might have been that's the correct. one exception to the time. Right. So there's certainly something to be said about composure and composure is can I stay focused on what is relevant and valuable to me right now, not something that is far off or do i not get sucked into something that is part of this storm but not something that i actually have to engage with in a way where it becomes disruptive so you can see certain players do that better than others and that is something that you have to learn how to be able to filter out uh let me let me finish with this for for the audience on page 217 the bottom of 217 you say take some time to consider these questions Honest answers to these questions will give you more influence over your own golf experience. How do you define success for yourself and your golf experience? What would the pursuit of this kind of success entail? What might be the costs and sacrifices of that pursuit? What would be the best ways to use your time, energy, effort, and resources to pursue your definition of success? What habits will impede or facilitate this definition of success? And what benefits would you need to evaluate and potentially reshape to pursue this definition of success? And, and then there are two others. How would you measure whether you've reached your definition of success? And are you willing to put forth the effort required for long enough to have a chance at reaching your definitions of success? You ask these essential questions of the reader. Um, and, and that's important to understand. This is not just about how you're explaining how the best do what they do. It's a how to apply the things that you work on with special talents and how, you know, there are things that we think and feel that manifest in our performance that can be altered and changed for the better. Um, what has been the feedback? What has been, has there been one particular or two particular things that you've gotten back from the people who've consumed this book that either surprised you or you went, I wasn't. I didn't anticipate that. Yeah. Um, I am happy that I knew making the reader the main character and, yes. not other golf, and not other golfers was very, was more, the reason I did that it was very intentional, which is I was hoping the book was going to be written for the person reading it. Therefore, instead of trying to be like somebody else or think like somebody else, they can understand how they think and perhaps how they would want it's to very think. Very effective. Better, right. So the feedback on that has been, I'm happy to say, tremendous. That more people have been, thank you for writing a book that wasn't just telling me how some other player works and at a level where I can do something about it. That has been great. The other thing that's been surprising to me is how many professional and I might say amateur elite players, so you're talking like scratch golfers and better, have really gravitated toward this book. Not that it can't help a golfer of any level, but I think there's something to be said about golfers who have physically met a certain level of competency that they're looking for something to help them unlock that more. And, and they are understanding that what's traditionally been available to them isn't doing it. 
So the feedback from really competent players who are playing at really high levels has been um, really humbling to a degree that I've hopefully provided them with something that they are looking for but haven't had access to before. It's um, it's awfully good. I, I, I don't mean to end this with a frivolous question, but I, I ask it only because there are a lot of athletes who really love this line from a baseball movie. Did you see Love of the Game with Kevin Costner? Yeah. When he says, clear the mechanism, does that line amuse you? Uh, do you identify with it at all? I love the line. I have no idea, sure. you know, whether it's, it's great. It is a great line if you know the mechanisms underneath. So if you're going to clear the mechanism, you better understand the mechanisms for doing that, right? So it is a wonderful line in a very good movie, by the way. Um, but if you don't, it, it's kind of like saying be a hitter unless you understand what be a hitter means. Right. Right. Now, if my coach had told me, if we come back to the beginning of our conversation, be a hitter means when you step into the box, look for the ball out of the pitcher's hand and be very picky about what pitches you hit or swing at, that would have been very helpful information for me, right? Just be a hitter, no idea. Clear the mechanism, there's a sense of that, which is really the sense is filter out distraction, focus on what's relevant, which is, of course, a fundamental, psychological fundamental for performing well. But if the phrase is just clear the mechanism with no comprehensive understanding underneath, then that only serves to complicate performance, not simplify. The book, again, is Golf Beneath the Surface. Um, I couldn't rec it, recommend it any higher uh, than I did. It's just, it, it really is a tremendously interesting examination on truly what does happen. And this is, like you said, Raymond, this is about, yeah, it's about golf, but I've told other people, like, this is applicable to, like, whatever your vocation might be about understanding things about how your mind uh, operates in the way that it does. Um, thank you for indulging me with the amount of time. I look forward to doing this again. I can't wait to turn this book on to, to some juniors who have futures in this game at various levels. Um, and, and I look forward to hearing. I know you've got a new podcast, by the way, I believe. Well, go ahead and share that with everybody. Sure, absolutely. If people would like to hear more about Golf Beneath the Surface, they can join me and my co-host, Chase Cooper, who is an expert instructor and just really deeply curious about the game. The name of the podcast is Golf Beneath the Surface. And uh, we're in the early stages of it, and we're starting to get guests. And, and uh, Gary, we're going to add you to the list of guests, if you don't mind. I, I would love to join you. Uh, and by the way, you didn't overthink the title of the podcast. Uh, <laughs> it was a, it's a bit on the nose, which is just fine. <laughs> again, golf beneath the surface. It's fantastic. Raymond, thank you again. Thank you, Gary. Appreciate you having me on. Thank you so much. Really appreciate Raymond Pryor joining me. And again, the book, it's golf beneath the surface. And I, I've read most, not all, but most of the, the books that are the application of trying to understand the mind as it relates to playing the game of golf competently, um, this one is different uh, in a really, really interesting and good way, which I think is useful for people who just want to enjoy the game more. And if you get better, great. Uh, so I really appreciate Raymond's time. Most importantly, though, appreciate your time watching and listening to this episode of the Five Clubs Conversation. We'll see you next week.